Welcome to Change by Attraction, a podcast for people who want to create change in their organizations, whether on the team level, the department level, or for the entire entity. I'm your host, Esther Derby, author of Seven Rules for Positive Productive Change. In my work, I draw on models, frameworks, years of experience. Yet one of my most valuable tools for change is a really simple one. It's curiosity. By being curious, I learn a host of things that help me understand what's going on, what's going on for people, how the system acts, and how to shape change. So I'm going to start with a story, one that is actually about the opposite of curiosity. It's about blame. And then I'll come back to curiosity because I think the contrast is an important one. At one of my clients, the managers expressed frustration that development teams weren't meeting schedules. Now, this is a fairly common complaint in software organizations. It's often one of the first things that comes up when people say they want to make some changes. But when I heard the managers in this organization talk about it, they mostly blamed the teams. I regularly heard comments like, they commit, but they don't deliver. Or I would never back out on a commitment the way they do. Or why don't they do what they say they'll do? They're just lazy. They're slacking off. If they weren't slacking off, they'd be making these deadlines. Now, all of these statements assume that the fault for not meeting the schedule was with the team. I also noticed that whenever one of these blaming statements happened, or when someone asked a blaming question, all problem solving ceased. From there on, it was just head nodding and commiseration. Now, I know these managers wanted to deliver software to their customers, and so did the teams. They wanted to meet these commitments to their customers, even when those commitments had been made by people much higher up in the organization and often in a different department. But the focus on blaming the teams for not meeting the desired schedule, one that was based on high hopes and lots of optimism, prevented them from making any headway in figuring out why the teams kept missing iteration goals. And it kept them from adjusting the schedule based on the reality of what the teams were capable of delivering. Their assumption that someone was at fault kept the focus on team members, not on the system, not on obstacles, not on technology problems, and not on the way the schedule had come about. The dictionary definition of blame is to find fault or hold responsible. There are certainly times in an organization where you need to hold people responsible when they cause problems, when those individual actions cause problems. Like the guy who threatened to slap his coworker. I mean, that's an individual problem. That's not a system problem. So you have to hold people to account in cases like that. You have to hold them responsible. However, from a psychological perspective, blame is a defense mechanism. It makes the blamer feel superior and more powerful, at least for the moment, and it deflects attention. It masks problems with the system by putting the focus on individuals, and it obscures the fact that managers actually have some responsibility for improving the system, 
even while they're part of it. Now, blaming always gets in the way of problem solving. And when blame is the default behavior in an organization, bad things happen. People invest energy in making sure that they won't be blamed. And that leads to paper trails and positioning and creating plausible deniability, all sorts of CYA behavior. People withhold information because they fear how they'll be treated when they bring up problems. Now, problems can't hide forever, so when they finally do come up, they're usually bigger and the options for solving them are fewer. Because people hide information or they shade it so they give the best possible impression, most information becomes unreliable. Even accurate information gets tainted because you just can't tell without going to verify it yourself. And that takes up a lot of time. When issues finally do service like they always do, people are scared or disengaged. And scared and disengaged people aren't as creative or tenacious as they could be which means that whatever fix people come up with, it's more likely to be a Band-Aid, which may soothe the symptoms, but it doesn't actually address any root causes. People also don't learn from problems and mistakes when blame is the knee-jerk response. They focus on avoiding blame, not on learning. They may try something different, but it won't be from a deep understanding of the situation. It'll be the least risky action they can take that will look like action and protect them from more blame. So all of this makes it likely that problems are going to linger for a long time before they become visible and making changes to improve the situation will be much harder. And this is true for any sort of problem situation, whether it's one where you're looking at a major change or, or a small change. Blame is harmful all the way around. It hurts individuals, it dampens results, and it obscures opportunities for improvement. The only way to work out of a blame orientation is to choose not to do it. You don't have to participate. And that brings us back to curiosity. Curiosity doesn't assume ill intent or lack of character, lack of motivation, lack of intelligence, laziness, all of those bad things. Curiosity helps you get beyond the surface and understand what's contributing to the situation and why the system acts the way it does, why seemingly reasonable people are doing puzzling things. So at my client, I started asking different questions. Eventually, some of the managers started doing that too. And over time, our questions uncovered contradictions and hurdles and confusion and misunderstanding and technical problems, environment problems, all of which were things people in the organization could work on and make better. And some things did start getting better. When blame receded, curiosity and problem solving started. In situations where you're hoping to change something or fix a problem or in life in general, you can always make the choice to demonstrate and model curiosity. And armed with what you learn, you can start problem solving and maybe empathizing. People will notice, and then they may start asking different questions themselves. They may make different assumptions. And over time, you can build or rebuild some safety. And then people will tell you more and be more invested in making things better. And they'll be thinking more clearly, and they'll be more creative. So there you have it. Curiosity. 
It's my number one change artist superpower. And it can be yours too, for free. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. I'll be back next month with another.